Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk. Welcome back. Views and news uh, on Cape Talk through till 12 o'clock with me, Clarence. It is now uh, 9.36 Friday. Huge appointment for Dr. Chris Smith, the naked scientist, joins us um, via Zoom from the UK. You have that question that keeps you awake at night. Well, today is the day. We'll have it answered. The naked scientist will do exactly that. Interesting. A uh, couple of questions in about nightmares and dreams. And I've noticed a bit of a pattern. Sometimes, you know, the same things come through on the same day. Uh, I'm not going to put that question, why does that happen uh, to the naked scientist just yet? But we're going to start off um, with a voice note. Let's take a listen. Morning, uh, um, Clarence and uh, Dr. Chris. Dr. Chris, I have a curiosity about nightmares. You get these beautiful ones and then you get these ugly nightmares. Ugly ones where you get chased by a bunch of thugs or by this dangerous animal. Yeah, and somehow um, they don't catch up with you. And or this feeling that you are going to drown and you struggle to wake up because you don't want to drown. And then you get these beautiful ones where you drive this beautiful car convertible or you um, land it. Uh, somewhere with a whole uh, field full of money and yeah you just don't want to wake up from <laughs> that type of a dream so what causes these nightmares and yeah these other beautiful mess, whatever you call it have a good show bye thank you Mabuti, for that question yeah talk to us about the subconscious dr chris smith we don't know why animals dream we all do it animals do it we can prove that they do it because the brainwaves change when we breathe, when we dream and we can see the same brainwave changes in animals when they're showing all the physical manifestations of dreaming that we see. So something special about the way the brain is wired in us and simpler animals means that we dream. When we dream, we are disconnecting all the normal parts of the brain that talk to each other in the normal way and making them talk to each other in different ways. But they're presenting their activity spontaneously to our subconscious and that is in some way enabling us to have these experiences which happen through the night. And they happen in increasing richness and with increasing duration during the night. So when you first start to dream, you have little snapshots of dreams and as you go through the night, you tend to have longer and more detailed, more colourful dreams and you're more likely to remember them because if you wake up at the time that you're having a dream you're more likely to remember it and this is why you tend to remember the last thing you dreamed but it tends to be quite colorful and rich because the more detailed dreams happen towards the end of your sleep phase and most of us are waking up at roughly the point where we're having the richest dreams often because they're quite exciting or uh, stimulating in some way and it and it makes you tip over into wakefulness and so because that experience was in your mind's eye at the time you were having it then you tend to remember it why we do it we don't know we do know that you can you can certainly control to an extent the content of your dreams in that they reflect your experiences they reflect your past experiences but they also reflect your recent experiences people who are having a particularly anxious or or tough time tend to have more anxiety dreams they're things where there's a sensation of loss of control or uh, people often say that they they might lose teeth in their dreams and this is a classic anxiety dream it might be because you're grinding your teeth at the time that you're doing that when we have very nice dreams it can often reflect the fact that nice things have been happening to us or we're in a good place in our lives so really it's a reflection motivated and stimulated by what's been happening to you but it is 
your brain, we think, making sense or sorting out and deciding what to chuck away of your experiences during the day. But it's very, very hard to study this because we're constrained by ethics in terms of what we can do to people and we can't ask animals things other than make measurements on them when they dream. So really it remains something of a black box. We're going to stay on the subject for a short while longer. Two questions in the one reads. My question for Dr. Smith is, why is it that no matter how absurd my dreams may be, I don't experience it in that way while I'm dreaming? That's Michael from Durbanville. Then Zuki has another question in, and it reads uh, a follow-on from the dream question. It is said that dreams are more vivid when a woman is ovulating. Um, Can that be confirmed? On the ovulation question, I don't know. But what we do know is that certainly hormones have a profound impact on the way the brain works, including mood and that kind of thing. And if you change your mood or your overall uh, sense of feeling, feeling good, feeling bad, which can come in some people very in a very exaggerated way with the menstrual cycle, this may in turn affect the contents of your dreams in the way that we've just mentioned. So I'm prepared to accept that that may be the case, but I don't know for sure, but it's it's a good thought. Um, the other question, can you just remind me what the first one was? Uh, the first one is absurd, dream, absurd dreams. Yes, why you don't, don't believe them, why, why they, they don't seem weird at the time. They seem very yes. exciting, they seem very fun, but they don't seem necessarily to be odd in, in the, the same sense. I think probably this is because different parts of our brains do different jobs. We have a rational part of our brain that works out whether something's realistic, whether it's sensible, whether it could have an effect on other people and it enables you to put yourself in their shoes. We also have other bits of our brain which are concerned with processing colours, bits of our brain that do sounds, bits of our brains that do emotion. And because all these areas disconnect themselves from the way they would normally talk to each other during wakefulness when we're asleep, then you're presenting all these different emotions, but they're not being filtered through the same process that would normally present a joined-up contiguous picture to your consciousness and so therefore things just basically have a direct line to head office and they say here's what we're experiencing and so the uh, is this rubbish center is bypassed and you just believe it okay another two questions on dreams why have i stopped dreaming i haven't dreamt in a long time says brendan and then somebody says uh, i don't know i don't know if this makes sense do people that have aphantasia dream Um, First of all, on the I don't dream anymore question, there's a couple of things to consider here. The thing that you need in order to dream is good quality, healthy sleep, and it must be natural sleep. If you drink alcohol, then this can put you into a stupor and it can disturb your normal pattern of sleep. If you don't sleep enough, this can mean that your body catches up on its deep sleep at the expense of its REM dream sleep, and this means that you may not have enough REM sleep to remember that and if your overall sleep quality is poor you may not be able to get into the cycle of sleeping where you go through these periods where you have high high levels of brain activity when dreaming occurs and then periods of deeper more relaxed sleep so i i suspect when brendan is saying i don't dream anymore it may be that you're just not waking up at the time when you are dreaming and so you think you're not dreaming it may be that your overall volume or amount of sleep is insufficient for you to get detailed enough dreams towards the end of your night of sleep 
that you'll remember and they'll make a point. And as you get older, we all take less sleep anyway. We, we notice that our sleep requirements tend to drop with age. And that may also mean that there's less periods of dreaming. And so you may not remember them for that reason. I'm not sure about the aphantasia question. If I may, I'll take that away and have a think about that one. Absolutely. Let's let's go to Pete in table view. Uh, he wants to know if chat GPT will replace the naked scientist. <laughs> uh, I asked ChatGPT to tell me what was the Naked Scientist, and it told me that the astronomer Patrick Moore, Sir Patrick Moore, founded the Naked Scientist, and he, he didn't. He'd been dead for a while before the Naked Scientist came along. But uh, this is an important point in terms of what can we do with these artificial intelligence systems. The most worrying feature about them at the moment, apart from the fact they might put many of us out of a job, is that when they don't know the answer, they make stuff up. When I didn't know the answer, I said, I'll take that away and have a think about it. But ChatGPT does what's called hallucination. It comes up with very plausible sounding things, which people may take as read, but in fact are completely conflated. Patrick Moore was never part of the Naked Scientists, my experience. A lawyer recently got themselves in, in, in big trouble because they asked ChatGPT or, or one of those sorts of uh, large language model systems to come up with them a legal case. And it produced a legal case supported by case law and documents uh, citing various cases that didn't exist. And the lawyer hadn't checked them and they got into big trouble that way. So I, I think one has to be very cautious how we involve and engage and use these things they are not a replacement for a human they are a useful tool that can help you to become more productive or to work better or to refine your own techniques but certainly in the near term they are not a replacement for a person who doesn't who, who does know when they don't know something and won't make something up will chat gpt ever contribute to the body of knowledge well, this is the other concern, which is that what is the body of knowledge? The body of knowledge is when lots of people contribute their views, perspectives, opinions, work, data, analysis, research to the corpus that is that is human knowledge. And out of that emerges our current view as to what the established facts of something or theories about something are. If you have a system that can proliferate, proliferate and promulgate huge amounts of information, some of it misinformation, some of it quite frankly wrong, there is a real danger that at the volume this is being produced, it could lead to enough people saying, well, there's loads and loads of things saying this, so it must be true. And so it could unfortunately have the opposite effect of contributing to human knowledge. It could undermine human knowledge by creating fake facts that we then assume are true because we seem to hear enough people saying them. And when enough people appear to be saying something, we tend to believe it. So we've got to be really cautious that they don't pollute human knowledge. And that's why people are urging caution around their use. Morning, Clarence and Dr. Chris. I've had numerous experiences where I sit in a room knowing the exact word for word and actions playing out I have been here before or a dream will warn me of a personal incident before it happens, usually by means of a serpent or dragonfly appearing in my dreams. Mariana from Cape Town wanting to lure us into the esoteric. Are you tempted? Well, the thing to bear in mind with this is that the way the human brain works is that we are programmed to look for connections or associations between things. This happened and then this happened. And this is how we learn because we're establishing a connection between cause and effect, a bit like Pavlov's dog salivated when the dinner bell rang, because usually when the dinner bell rang, they got fed. They made that connection. So our brains are all about connecting one thing happening and there being an outcome. And 
what we end up doing, unfortunately, is falling into the trap of occasionally attaching significance to a coincidence. We tend to remember the things when something happened and there was an outcome. We dismiss the millions of times when something happened and there was no outcome, and it biases our thinking. So you have to be very cautious about to thinking, well, there was this connection to this, and this warned me, but all the millions of other times when you had a dream and it had something in it and then there was no outcome, you just dismissed it and forgot about it because it didn't ring an alarm bell in your brain. So most of the time when people have looked into these sorts of strange anomalous things, they find that it's a person being biased by the fact that they're attaching much more significance to the events that they did want to have the outcome they were searching for and they're disregarding and therefore deprioritizing the times when that didn't happen and the times when it didn't happen far outweigh the times when it did. But we don't remember that. The Naked Scientist, through till 10 o'clock. You're welcome. Bring your questions via WhatsApp at 0725671567. Uh, your calls 021-446-0567. Salwin wants to know, why is so much attention, research and money poured into artificial intelligence when there's so much natural stupidity going around? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think about it, what could these sorts of systems do for us? They give us the ability to think, analyse and produce work, data, impacts where our brains cannot venture. Good example of this, if we wanted to look at huge amounts of information and spot patterns in there, it would take a human months and months and months to work through all the numbers. We may not even ever see the pattern. Whereas a computer, which has no problem, and these large language models and other artificial intelligences and machine learning algorithms have no problem, it just takes them time, analysing all the possible connections between different data sets to look for patterns. A good example of this, the human body contains millions of molecules and they're all present at different levels. And it's almost certain that a person who is destined to get a disease will have a specific pattern, if we look at a certain number of molecules, which will predict, relative to each other, that that disease is developing. So if we could measure all the millions of molecules in a human body, and then we could relate all of them to each other, their individual chemistries and their individual levels, and then the disease outcome, you could say, I now have the perfect test for this disease, that disease and this disease, years ahead of it ever happening. But for a person to do that and spot those patterns and spot them way in advance, very, very difficult indeed. But machines can do it. Climate change, ways of looking at climate data and looking at how individual elements of, of the environment change relative to each other and how they predict what's going to happen years in the future. All those patterns are there but they're really hard to spot. So there are uses for this sort of technology, anticipatory uses, uh, pattern analysis, this kind of thing, which takes our ability to work and think and be productive way beyond the constraints of the human brain. So therefore it's very valuable, but a bit like a gun is very useful for catching your dinner if you're out there hunting, but can also be turned for nefarious ends and be very destructive You've got to be very careful with these very powerful tools. Let's go on to sunflowers. Can sunflowers absorb radioactive waste? And can sunflowers also purify the ground? Keith, with that question. Hi, Keith. Well, the answer is that um, sunflowers, I only realise how clever and special they are when I spoke to a lady who works on the clocks that run in the cells in 
in plants like sunflowers. They're members of the daisy family. And the flower is actually the black bit in the middle. And the yellow petals all around the edge are just basically landing strips for insects. And as the insects come in, guided by the outer petals, they're actually heading for the flowers in the middle where the black bit is. And they produce these amazing rings of flowering so that the insects walk over a flower which starts off male and gets to the female bit in the middle and drops the pollen it's just picked up on the way through. And then the next day, the male ones have turned female and the female ones have been fertilised. It's absolutely amazing how they do this. But anything that's rooted to the ground is drawing up stuff that is in the ground. Water, salts, other nutrients. And if you grow plants in ground that is radioactively contaminated, then it will end up pulling in radiation from the ground because it's dissolved in the groundwater. And people have now begun to make genetically modified plants which do this even more because what you can do is add to the plants a gene which makes them produce or in some cases overproduce certain chemicals that can do what's called collate or bind to certain chemicals and if you make them produce a chemical that's very good at collating a radioactive species then the plants will pull in lots of the stuff from the from the groundwater and then lock it away in these proteins that they've made and this is one way of decontaminating contaminated ground. You don't just have to do it for radiation. You can do it for a whole raft of different things like heavy metals and so on. And this means that you can harvest the plant, which will then contain very high levels or higher levels of the contaminant. But then you could safely dispose of the plant biomass in a way that either enables you to scavenge back whatever the, the contaminant was that's now locked up in the plant or safely dispose of the plant somewhere. And then the soil has now been depleted in that particular chemical by a certain amount. You keep doing this until you have got the levels down to safer levels. I have two questions. Um, two questions quickly. On the phone, we have Jeremy. Jeremy, sorry, out in Cork Bay, a question about severe weather. If you can keep it concise, Jeremy, we'll appreciate it. Okay. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had those massive swells that did so much damage to the south coast of South Africa. And... When one of the meteorologists was questioned about it and said, was it due to global warming? He said, no, it was due to the ozone, the hole in the ozone shrinking. And I hadn't heard that. I'd only ever heard about the big hole in the ozone that we were doing so much damage to with our CFCs. And then we got Tanya. Tanya, your question briefly, please. Um, yeah, I just want to know that um, alien fossil that they found from Peru does Dr. Smith think it's real? Do we have uh, think that it's a little body or is it a real thing, alien? Thank Thanks. you, Tanya. Um, uh, Dr. Chris, we have about a minute. <laughs> yeah, on the alien, we don't, we don't believe that's real. People think that it is a very crafty, well-crafted fake, uh, although no one knows for sure, but it, it, it's almost certainly a fake. On the ozone question... The ozone hole is chiefly centred over Antarctica and the reason it's centred over Antarctica is because ozone is depleted by chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, which are refrigerant chemicals that were in all kinds of different things including air conditioners, fridges, even asthma inhalers and these are concentrated over the South Pole because there is a circumpolar vortex which concentrates these chemicals over Antarctica during the dark winter and then when the sun shines in the summer it photoactivates those chemicals and turns them into a particularly reactive species which attacks ozone and this made the ozone hole occur. Now that 
allows more UV to come through, but it doesn't necessarily affect the temperature that much. It will, it will affect temperature a bit, but we think that more energy in the atmosphere because of global warming will affect more storms, will, will provoke more storms because there's more energy around and, and high wind speeds, and this will in turn whip up a bigger swell in the ocean. So it's more likely that it's overall global temperature rather than just the depletion of ozone. The ozone hole is getting smaller, not getting bigger. So if it was going to cause big swells, we'd have seen those already, I believe. And we're going to have to rest it there. Big thank you, Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, every Friday uh, just after 9.30. Time for news. It comes your way next.